The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my honor this morning to, to be the, the one who's been chosen to deliver the Word. It's, it's, a, it's a Palm Sunday, and we had to make a decision early on in our preaching calendar. Were we going to pause our current sermon series uh, and, and, and teach a specific text about Palm Sunday, or are we going to kind of just preach through? And we decided just to continue to, we've been teaching through Mark since September. We decided to go to the next section in Mark. And this happens to be Jesus teaching about divorce. So nothing says happy Palm Sunday like divorce. It's like, <laughs> it is what it is. This is the Word of God. So we're going to do our best. Uh, hey, really glad you're here. Glad for those of you that are here in person. I know we got folks that tune in online each week. Want to welcome those folks. We got people out in the overflow. And, and we are. We, we are teaching through the book of Mark. Um, and have been since September. We're calling this series Son of God, Suffering Servant. And, and as we do, I just want to remind those of us that are part of Heritage, and if you're new to Heritage, as you walk in, you see these white banners on the side of the hallway when you come down the hallway. And those, each of those five banners speak to one of the core values that we hold near and dear here at Heritage. And one of the core values that we have, it's, 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 we say it's right doctrine and biblical interpretation. Another way of, that's a fancy way of saying that we hold, we have a very high regard for Scripture at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We value the Word of God at, at, at Heritage. And so one of the ways that we live out that core value is how we choose to teach Scripture and teach God's Word on a Sunday morning. We, we do what's called ex, ex, expositional preaching or expository preaching. And, and what, we, what we mean by that is that word expository, it simply means um, an explanation or setting forth an explanation. We believe that, that God has inspired this Word and this is inspired. It's the Word of God. It's inerrant, and we believe it's authoritative. And so when we, when we come to the Scriptures to teach it, we want to exposit the Scripture. We want to expose the truth of God's intention in inspiring these words. We want to expose it to the people of Heritage Christian Fellowship. And so the hard work that we do throughout the midweek as a preaching team and as a, as a staff, as we work in the text, we sit in the text, we process the text, we do something called exegesis, and we reflect on, on what it meant to the original audience and how does it point us to the gospel and how do we apply it to today. And so going back all the way to last spring, our preaching team took a retreat. We sat together, we read through the entire gospel of Mark, and we broke it up in what we just call preaching units, little units of text we, we, we recognized were kind of contained thought units. And those became the, the texts that we were going to preach each week, and then we put it on a calendar. And there's some weeks you're getting ready to the text that, that you're excited about. There's some weeks you get to teach on really cool, awesome, encouraging, inspiring stuff. And there's some weeks you get to some really tough things. Last week was one of those weeks. It was a tough text last week. The end of chapter 9 of Mark, Jesus, from the lips of our Lord, as R.C. Sproul would say, Jesus uh, spoke on the, the horror of hell. And Jeremy uh, exposited the text for us last Sunday, gave us the hope of the gospel at the end. And this week is another one of those texts. It's like it's not an easy text to teach. This is a hard text. It's tough when you have to speak on something like divorce in, in this biblical perspective. of it. And I'm a flawed man. But my hope today is we get to this text as I can handle God's word rightly and we can teach it for those of us here today. And I believe God has something for all of us as we engage with this text. Amen? So if you'd open up your Bibles to chapter 10 of Mark, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read through uh, the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10. Um, then we're going to pray and then we'll, we'll get into the, into the teaching. Mark 10, beginning in verse 1, the heading on your Bible should say teaching about a divorce. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, saying, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
this is a hard teaching from the lips of Jesus. And as we read this text, this is not all that the Bible has to say about divorce. Uh, However, there's not a lot in the scriptures about divorce, and so our hope today is that we can expose the meaning of these words, but we're also going to kind of scale back and we're going to try to look at the whole of scripture to talk about this issue. We're going to try to apply these words, but here's the reality. I've been in pastoral ministry for 20 years and walked with many families and couples through the, through the challenge and the difficulty and the brutality of divorce and, and, and trying to apply these truths in very specific and unique circumstances can be very hard and it's difficult. It requires humility and discernment and wisdom and it's challenging. So, so today as I work through this text, I'm going to end up flying a little high and there's going to be times along the way where you're going to want a specific application to a specific situation and I'm not going to be able to descend down into the weeds because of the nature of the text. But here's my hope. My hope is that you'll stick with me today. Because my guess is I might say something at some point in this message as I'm trying to teach this word that's going to rub you the wrong way, it's going to hit the wrong way, and I'm going to try my best to be humble and get out of the way and let the text do the speaking, but, my, but chances are this is, going to, this is going to ruffle feathers at some point. So could you just, could you just stick with me? Stick with me to the end. And know that, that I'm an open book, know that I don't know all things, and know that our staff, we sat through this text this week, we wrestled with this, we love to dialogue with you. If you're in a situation and you're trying to figure out how this applies, we want to have an honest conversation about that, we're approachable. And so let's, humil- with, with humility, let's, let's approach this passage and let's do our very best to teach through it. Amen? Pray with me. Father, God, I, do, I, I just pray with humble hearts, God, with with, with minds that are desirous to, to learn and to hear from you, God, that we would approach this text. And God, there's some of us here today are saying, what in the world do I want to hear about divorce for? It's the furthest thing from my mind. And there's some here today where this is very, very close to home. And this is just the way you inspired the scripture. This just happens to be the text for the day. So God, we trust and believe that you're sovereign over this sermon being preached on this day. And we ask God that you would speak to us through this word. God, help me to get out of the way. And God, may you speak forth your words for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the greatest privileges and one of the greatest honors of the pastorate, of the job that I have, is being invited into people's lives in their most painful moments. And it doesn't sound like an honor, but it's an incredible honor. I call it sacred, in fact. When someone invites you into their life in their most painful moment, as a pastor or as a minister of the gospel, you recognize it's not you they're looking for wisdom from or answers from. They want to hear from God. And so people invite you into their lives in these very sacred moments. And one of the things over the years that has been so hard is to watch as people labor and suffer and and have emotional blood loss at the reality of divorce. I've watched friends and, and siblings and brothers and sisters in Christ go through the horror and the challenge and the difficulty of divorce. I think of my colleague from Wisconsin, whom I love. Her and her husband spent so much time at our house, and we spent time together. She worked for my wife in our church, and one day she called us shocked and heartbroken that her husband walked in and announced out of the blue that the marriage was over. She did not see it coming. Completely caught her off guard. And for the next weeks, months, years, and even still to this day, we sit with her in those asses as she's trying to comprehend a life without a husband who kind of just abandoned her. I think of my brother, who uh, uh, was my backpacking buddy, who came to faith in Christ at our church from, a, from a, a worldly lifestyle, started walking with the Lord, met a godly woman, asked me to be his best man. It was the perfect story. It's a storybook ending until the one day he came home from work and she left a note, took the kids, and, and left him. Um, out of the blue, turned his world upside down. And to sit with my friends in those ashes and watch the horror and the emotional blood loss of divorce was brutal. I felt righteous anger to see someone walk away from a marriage that they didn't have biblical grounds to walk away from. I I felt great sorrow for my friends who felt abandoned and betrayed and cast aside by their spouse. I've also sat in situations that aren't so cut and dry. This is often the case when it comes to divorce, especially among brothers and sisters in Christ. Messy situations that aren't so clear. And After years of frustration and marital conflict and discord and trying and trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing, I've watched couples just give up and just sort of collapse into divorce as like the only option that's left. And I've sat in that awful place too when divorce feels like the sad conclusion to a never-ending season of struggle. So I've watched in horror as my own siblings have 
dealt with the brutality of divorce. And so the truth is, as we gather here today, every one of us in this room on some level or another has had to deal with the reality of divorce. It's hard. Some of you have dealt with it more significantly than others. Some of you have watched as the marriages of those you love and care for, siblings and close friends have crumbled, and it's awkward, and it's weird, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know what to say, and what happens when our two friends divorce? Who am I going to be friends with? What's that look like? Some of you have had children who've gone through divorce. Many of you in this room have had your parents divorce. Whether you were young or old, it's, even if the marriage was awful, it's always painful. It's always hard. It's a tearing apart. It, it's a life-altering event. It's an earthquake event in the lives of many if their parents have divorced. Many of you here can attest to that. Some of you in this room have endured divorce. Some of you in this room have fought hard for your marriage over many long seasons only to have a spouse choose to walk away and give up, and you've had to deal with the pain of that. Some of you in this room have pursued divorce, and as you sit back on it now and you look back at your actions, you recognize that you were the one who wasn't faultless and that maybe the divorce you pursued was unbiblical. These are all parts of the realities that we all have. And I'm not here as some big, great judge. I'm just a man. I'm not here to point fingers, to wag fingers, to cast stones. I'm here to teach the Word of God. I'm a preacher. I'm trying my best to speak forth these words of Jesus. I recognize that marriages are complex and these matters are complex. And so my hope today is that we can work through the teachings of Jesus and that we can scale back a little bit and that God has something for all of us here today. So would you look with me again at verse 1 of Mark 10. And also, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to thumb ahead and throw a place in Mark or Matthew 19 as well, or to thumb back to Matthew 19. Because in Matthew 19, in the first 10 or 12 verses, we have the parallel account of what we see here in Mark. And in order for us to fully understand what we see in Mark 10, we're going to have to go ahead and look at what we see in Matthew 19. The first verse here is just, uh, Mark is giving us the setting. He's saying that, that Jesus left Capernaum where he was at with his disciples and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again as was his custom. He taught them. And so at this point in, the, in Mark's gospel as we've seen over the last several weeks is Jesus is, is teaching and instructing his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And Mark over the last couple of chapters has made it a point to kind of point out the geographical location of Jesus at each of these teachings. We go back to chapter 8. He was in Caesarea Philippi, all the way in the north of Israel. And that's where Peter confessed him as the Christ. That's where the Mount Hermon transfiguration took place. Last week, as Jeremy taught us at the end of chapter 9, it pointed out that Jesus was journeying through Galilee, and he was in Capernaum, which is just on the north shore of Galilee, some 115 miles from Jerusalem. And now in today's text, Mark tells us that Jesus is in Judea, and he's in the region beyond the Jordan called Perea. It's down kind of east, about 30 or 40 miles from Jerusalem. So, so Mark is kind of helping us see that Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem. He's journeying toward the cross. At the beginning of chapter 11, we're going to see the triumphal entry where the palm branches are waved as Jesus enters the city as the culmination of his mission and his ministry and as it brings him to the cross. And so this is Mark building anticipation as Jesus is journeying closer to Jerusalem. And so the first thing I want us to see in the text as we work through this is we're going to see three movements. The first movement I want you to see is that we see a test against Jesus in verses 2 through 5. We see a test against Jesus. Verse 2, a Pharisee came up and he said, in order to test Jesus, he said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I want you to circle or underline, if you're that kind of person, that word that says test. These Pharisees are not on a quest for truth. They're not seeking understanding of Scripture. They are, are trying to corner Jesus. And this is a loaded question. This was something the Pharisees themselves did not agree on. There was great division in, the, in that world at that time concerning the issue of divorce. There was two main schools of thought at this time. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Now the school of Shammai, this was a rabbi who had a conservative approach. The, 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 the Pharisees were interpreting Deuteronomy 24, and the school of Shammai was more conservative when it came to divorce. But then there was this other school, the school of Hillel, which was wildly liberal in their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and the reasons for divorce. And even in biblical times, there was this conservative and liberal battle. It wasn't just something for today. It's been going on for centuries. And Matthew's parallel account of this encounter kind of adds something that's important for us. The, it, it quotes the, the Pharisees as saying to Jesus, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
And so they're trying to draw Jesus into one of these long-standing arguments that they themselves haven't agreed upon. It's a trap. Perhaps they're trying to get Jesus to pick either the conservative or the liberal side so they can then gang up on him and paint a a picture that might lead to his destruction. If you remember back in Mark chapter 3, when the Pharisees and the legal authorities and the religious leadership had reached sort of peak frustration with Jesus, we read that they began to, to plot how they could destroy Jesus. And so this is just another attempt to destroy Jesus. But we also have to take note of where this is taking geographically. There in Judea and Perea, this region that's beyond the Jordan. This was the region of the reign of King Herod Antipas. Now, do you remember John the Baptist? Remember remember what, what King Herod did to John the Baptist? He cut his head off. Do you remember why King Herod cut the head off John the Baptist? Yeah, because John confronted King Herod because he had an illegitimate divorce. He divorced his wife and then married his brother's wife, Herodias. And as John the Baptist confronted that, he was beheaded. So it might be that these Pharisees recognize Jesus is in the region of the reign of King Herod. And if they can get him to speak against divorce and speak against King Herod, maybe they could get King Herod Antipas to do their dirty work for them and take off the head of their adversary. All that speculation at the end of the day. Verse 3 says, Jesus answered back to these Pharisees, What did Moses command you? This was often the tactic by Jesus. He rarely answered a question as soon as it was answered to him. This is a way in which he often interacted with these Pharisees. He asks another question, and he recognizes that for these men, Moses was their authority. And so he says, hey, what did Moses have to say about all this? And of course, he's referring to this text in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which is the Old Testament's only real teaching on divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 reads this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, then she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, yada, 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 he teaches on this issue of divorce. But the, the thing of debate between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, the, the conservatives and the, and the liberals, the thing they debated was what does this phrase some indecency mean? Moses writes in Deuteronomy 24, if this woman finds no favor in the eyes of her husband because he has found some indecency in her, he can then divorce her. So what does this phrase, some indecency, mean? Well, it it couldn't have meant adultery because in the Old Testament law, adultery was punishable by death. So this is some other sort of indecency other than adultery The more conservative school, the school of Shammai, they took this phrase, some indecency, to mean some sort of marital impropriety short of adultery. Scandalous behavior, sexual misconduct of some sort that that falls short of of, of adultery. But the the, the school of Hillel, this wildly liberal school, they took tremendous liberties in interpreting what does some indecency mean. And women were the victim of this because this was a different society. Jewish marriage was not a contract between equals. A woman did not marry but was given in marriage. She was the second-class citizen in the arrangement. And so in this school of Hillel, their liberal interpretation, a man could just cast his wife aside for any reason. And this law in Deuteronomy 24 was meant to protect her in such a case. But how the school of Hillel interpreted this, they said, okay, uh, what does some indecency mean? Well, if she burns a meal, that's indecent, I can divorce her. If she breaks my favorite plate, that's indecent, I can divorce her. If she walks around with her hair down, That's indecency, and I can divorce her. If she speaks ill of my mother, I can divorce her. Yeah, you can get cast aside for speaking ill of your mother-in-law in in this culture. I see some people laughing out there. Don't you dare speak ill against your mother-in-law. There was one one student of the school of Hillel that said some indecency might even mean if you happen to see another woman who is more attractive to your eye as a man, that by de facto makes your wife indecent, and you can then pursue this other woman and divorce her. So it was an awful interpretation of this law. So Jesus um, and the Pharisees continue to have this interaction. Beginning in verse 4, they said to Jesus, referring to this law in Deuteronomy 24, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. In verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. See, the Pharisees had made this great mistake. The religious leaders of the day had made this great mistake. They mistook Moses' provision for divorce— as an endorsement of divorce. In other words, they're thinking to themselves, how can divorce be wrong if Moses teaches us how to divorce? And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's only because of your hard hearts that this provision was made. Moses never commanded it. 
And the reason God permitted it was because the hearts of these men were wicked and hard. It was never committed, and it was, it was, it was, it was, always, it was never commanded, but was permitted. Uh, one scholar puts it this way. He said, what Moses did command in Deuteronomy 24 was the granting of a divorce certificate for the woman's protection. Without a certificate, she would be subject to exploitation and even recrimination. And as another puts it, Deuteronomy 24 is God's divine concession to human weakness. A concession to man's sinfulness. But it cannot be taken as approval. It was reluctant permission at best. And so the first thing we see is these Pharisees trying to test Jesus. And we see Jesus' response in verses 9, or 6, 7, 8, and 9. And the second thing we see is we see a truth about marriage. The way in which Jesus responds to this test as he speaks a truth about marriage. Read with me verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice how Jesus doesn't get into the weeds of the argument. He doesn't begin to argue about the particularities of their moral arguments. Instead, he chooses to use his breath to uphold God's ideal. So rather than parsing the particulars of people's sin and divorce, Jesus points people to the perfect picture of marriage pre-sin in the garden. I love this strategy. I wish I was better at this strategy. I sometimes think about the church's strategy. I often am worried that the world, the unbelieving world around Christians knows far more about what we're against as Christians than what we're for. I worry sometimes as Christians we use our breath to to point to all the things that offend us and all the things that go against God's morality instead of just holding up God's ideal. If you remember back in no, February, we did a little sermon series called Love, Marriage, Family. And that was kind of our value going into those teachings. We said, you know what? Let's uphold what God is for. Let's uphold the beautiful things that God is for rather than pointing our fingers at all the things we see wrong in our culture. How tempting is it to descend in the weeds of morality and point condemning fingers? What Jesus does here is he takes us back to Genesis 2. That's his tactic. He takes us back to to the pre-fall garden reality. Uh, this beautiful picture of the very first marriage. And what Jesus does is he holds up original marriage as the ideal for all marriages. And what he's saying is profound. What he's saying is in this pre-fall world, this pre-sin world, in the beginning, divorce was inconceivable and it was impossible. Kent Hughes points out something that I found really helpful. He, in quoting Genesis 2, Kent believes that Jesus uh, was, was emphasizing two aspects of marriage, the intimacy of marriage and the permanency of marriage. There's no human relationship on this side of heaven more intimate than the marriage relationship. It's to be the priority relationship in the home. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, the original marriage in the garden before sin entered the equation is God took a rib from Adam's side, caused Adam to fall asleep, and as God fashioned a helpmate suitable for him, the perfect complement to him, the perfect partner in life, the perfect wife, and as, as, as Adam comes back to life and he lays eyes on his wife, this perfect helpmate, he, he utters this beautiful poem in Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 Moses or Adam says this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and then Moses offers this commentary at the end of Genesis chapter 2 he says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed this is a beautiful beautiful picture of intimacy. The picture of nakedness with no shame is the ability to be fully exposed, fully present, vulnerably present, nothing held back, no shame, no insecurity, just this beautiful picture of trusted intimacy that God has for the marriage. For the marriage. It is to be the priority relationship in the home, deeper than even the parent-child relationship. And I get how deep the parent-child relationship is. I have three kids. Any parent here can attest. It's an incredible moment when, when a human person comes out of the body of my wife. It's like, this is ridiculous. It's crazy. And I'm holding a little wet human person in my hand. And this whole chamber of my heart that was dormant for 25 years leaps to life 
And I'm looking at my child, and it's a love I didn't know even existed. And in a second, I recognize I would face a grizzly bear. I would face the Taliban. I would face fire to protect that child. And, I, and I, that sort of paternal love, that sort of uh, maternal love, that parental love is on love like any other. And it only grows. Day two, you love them even more. Week two, you love them even more. Week five, year 10. I'm on year 21, year 19, and year 16 right now. And my love for them is greater than it's ever been. I love my kids. It's an incredible bond, but I only have one relationship in my life that is a one flesh union. And it's my marriage relationship with my wife. It's the priority relationship. It's the most intimate relationship. And Jesus is rightly pointing that out here and taking us back to Genesis chapter 2. He also speaks to the permanence of marriage. Look at the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't take this the wrong way, but I, I don't enjoy officiating weddings, and there's a whole reason for that. I would much rather do a funeral, like a hundred times out of a hundred, I would choose a funeral over a wedding. I, I won't tell you. It just, the, the, the soil is more fertile at a funeral. Is all. So at weddings, one of the things I struggle with with weddings, and I get it, they're supposed to be beautiful, it's just the pomp and circumstance and the flowers and the colors and all that sort of thing. As a guy, it just rubs me the wrong way, but it's whatever. I get it. They're, they're supposed to be beautiful, and I'm a big curmudgeon. I understand that. So, so I've done a million weddings, and there's always the unity ceremony, which always is a beautiful ceremony at the wedding that's supposed, to, that's supposed to illustrate the two becoming one, whether it's a unity candle, a unity cross. And one of the ceremonies is unity sand. Have you ever seen unity sand? Where you have like a, 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 a jar of like pink sand and like a jar of blue sand, and there's like this big jar in the middle, and as a part of the ceremony, the wife grabs her pink sand, and the groom grabs his blue sand, and they both pour it together into this central jar, and the grains of sand mixed together, never to be separated again. And it's a picture of the two becoming one. It's actually a pretty cool picture. Because the reality is, to try to separate the blue sand from the pink sand is impossible. It's violence, actually. And that gives us a picture of divorce. It's violence. It's awful. It tears apart something that's not meant to be torn apart. It rips a family apart. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about the permanence of marriage. What God ordained in the first marriage in the garden was intended to be the ideal. There was not even a thought of divorce, ever. God's ideal was and is monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage, and anything less than that is a departure from his divine design. Just because Adam and Eve sinned and the fall took place, this does not alter or change God's ideal for marriage. Jesus said to the Pharisees that divorce was permitted because of the hardness of their hearts. It's a concession based on the callousness of the human heart, but it's still a gross departure from God's ideal. Kathy Johnson, our women's ministry director, she sat in the, our, our study on Tuesday of this passage, and she, she read a quote. She, couldn't, she can't remember who said this, so I, I can't even give credit to who said this, but I think the quote is helpful. Divorce and remarriage are never commanded or commended in the word of God. Both are merely permitted as a gracious concession to the sinfulness of people. And in fact, if you look broader in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, the last book of the New Testament, we see God's heart for divorce. We see that God hates divorce. He's speak, this is the prophet Malachi. It's, it's the last prophet before the Old Testament canon is closed. And, and, and God is speaking through Malachi because the Israelite men were divorcing the Israelite wives and they were marrying pagan women and it was an offense to God. And so God is speaking about how gross that is to him in Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Here's, here's what we read. Why has God abandoned us, you cry? I tell you why. It's because the Lord has seen your treachery in divorcing your wives who have been faithful to you through the years the companions you promised to care for and keep. If you, were, if you were united your wife by the Lord in God's wise plan, when you married, the two of you became one person in his sight. And what does God want? Well, he wants godly children from your union. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says he hates divorce. Divorce is always a departure from God's ideal. And so as God upholds the truth about marriage, he reveals his heart concerning divorce, and he hates it. And so we see a test against Jesus. We see a truth about marriage. And finally, we see a teaching on divorce. We see a teaching on divorce. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12.
And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's a hard teaching. Notice that Jesus doesn't say this in front of the crowds. He pulls his disciples aside, and in an intimate place, he has this teaching directly to his disciples. If we're going to understand what Jesus says here in Mark 10, verse 11 and 12, we need to go to the parallel account in Matthew 19, verse 9. Because in Matthew's parallel account, there's, Matthew gives us a little bit more clarity, a little bit more of the details of what Jesus said here. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus is quoted as saying this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so Matthew's account here includes what's known as the exception clause. It's what's known as the exception clause. Mark doesn't include it in his clause. There's been lots of debate why Mark doesn't include the exception clause in his uh, account of this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Um, Some people have claimed that scribes later went back and added the exception clause to the Matthew account, but our earliest manuscripts of Matthew's gospel include it, so that's not a valid argument. This is a command that came from the lips of our Lord. John Stott offers some clarity here when he talks about why Mark may have omitted the exception clause. Simply put, John Stott just says that the audience took for granted that, of course, that's grounds for divorce. I mean, it was grounds for death up to this point. So clearly, if someone commits adultery, that's grounds for divorce. And so that's why Mark most likely didn't include it. And so according to the teachings of Jesus, according here just to the gospel of Mark, the only grounds for divorce according to Jesus is sexual immorality. And everything rests upon how we interpret the phrase sexual immorality, especially the word immorality. That's a word you you no doubt have heard of. It's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. Pornea means unchastity, which is this picture of uh, a lack of virtue or a lack of purity. Pornea means fornication or prostitution or unlawful, unlawful intercourse. I read this week that when pornea is applied to married persons, it means, as our text says today, sexual immorality illicit intercourse, all sorts of perversions. And so we can't forget, though, before Jesus spoke these words, uh, before he made this provision, adultery was still punishable by execution in Old Testament law. Think about when Joseph chose to kind of privately break off the engagement with Mary because he he sought to not have her destroyed. Think of the scene in John's gospel where the woman caught in the act of adultery is thrown in the presence of Jesus and all the men have rocks in their hands and they're going to throw stones at the woman until she's dead. This was the law. This was the practice. Now at the time of Roman occupation of Israel, about the time of Jesus, it was harder to get death sentences because of the Roman occupation, but it was still the law. And so before the gracious utterance of Jesus in this passage, uh, the, the sin of adultery didn't end marriage by divorce. The sin of adultery ended marriage by death. So what Jesus is saying here, he's saying the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. And the simple plain reading of, of Matthew's account in, in, in chapter 19, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, uh, that person commits adultery. We, we, it's just a simple, it's, it's a straightforward reading. We have to notice that Jesus doesn't, doesn't command divorce. He simply permits it in this case. And I, and I I don't want to minimize, and I certainly have seen the the horrible heartbreak and betrayal and destruction of infidelity. I've seen it in my own family. I've seen it among my friends and colleagues. It is a heartbreaking, earth-shattering, life-altering experience. And some of you know the pain of that. I don't mean to undermine that or or minimize that, that sin or that offense. And at the same time, I have dear, dear, dear friends who in in moments of brokenness, of waywardness, engaged in extramarital affair. I can think of one friend in particular who I love and admire, engaged in an extramarital affair a handful of years ago. And through God's grace, and through humility, and through confession, and resolve, and repentance, and forgiveness, and grace, and emotional blood loss, and hard work, and, and going to counselors, and fighting for their marriage. I've watched as God has healed a marriage that by all accounts could have been over, or should have been over, but it's not. And, and my friends today give testimony that, that their marriage is better than it's ever been. So even in infidelity, though it's biblical grounds for divorce, it doesn't have to lead to divorce. 
And there's some of you in the room today who have been offended against in that way. You've dealt with that betrayal. I'm sorry. There's some of you in this room who have been the offender and your heart is broken over your sin. And God can bring healing. And Romans 8, and Romans 8, 1 applies. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So there's still hope. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying to Christian couples, no matter how hard things are, no matter how rough things are today, no matter how stark the divide is between you and your spouse, no matter how painful and deep the discord, no matter how incompatible you are or how entrenched your differences and disagreements have become, nothing allows for divorce except for one thing, sexual immorality. And even then, by the grace of God, if at all possible, through confession and repentance and reconciliation and restoration, there is still hope. Through forgiveness and healing, God can bring a new thing. And so as we just read through the text, we see three things. We see a test against Jesus, we see a truth about marriage, and we see a teaching on divorce. And yet that's not all the New Testament has to say about divorce. So it's appropriate for us to take a moment to step back and do a little more of a broad analysis of the New Testament concerning divorce. I think it's appropriate. There's another teaching in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul, he offers some other instruction on divorce. In this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is offering advice to those who are unmarried, to married believers. But then he offers in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16, Paul offers some counsel to mixed marriages. When one spouse is, is, is a believer and the other spouse is not. He's writing to the church in Corinth. In Corinth, as the movement of God was taking root, and as people who got married in pagan relationships were, were in a pagan marriage, they come to faith in Christ. One is saved and one is not. That's complex. It's hard. It's messy. Paul is writing to offer some counsel into those situations. He says in, in, in verse 12, If a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So these marriages were mixed, and they were hard because there's two competing value systems at the center of the marriage. But Paul's advice is that believers should stay married to their unbelieving spouses. Here's what he says in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the reason for staying together, according to Paul, is missional. Uh, an unbelieving spouse might meet Jesus through their believing spouse. Through the daily... I remember listening to Lee Strobel talk about how his wife's conversion changed his heart. He was an avowed atheist. He was going to write a book uh, undermining the integrity of the resurrection because his wife became a Christian and it bothered him. And he talks about in his book, The Case for Christ, about how, about how it was his wife, she became winsome. And the fruits of the Spirit were evident. And he could not deny the fruit in her life as she was following Jesus and administered to his soul. And God used it to soften his heart that allowed him ultimately to encounter Jesus. And so, I, I, so for those of you today here and you're in an unequal marriage, I empathize with you. That's really hard, but there's hope. It may very well be your faithfulness. It may very well be your, your pursuit of Jesus in the presence of your spouse that God could use to soften the heart. Verse 15, however, we see the teaching on divorce. Paul goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. But if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying if an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse and it's clear they're not coming back, then it's permittable to let them go. Paul says the believer is not enslaved meaning that the unbelieving spouse has broken the marriage bond. And so what Paul seems to indicate here by this word enslaved is that the believer is free to divorce and remarry. And also, as we scale back and try to think of this biblically, I, there is a, you know, and here's the other thing. There's no agreement in the Christian church on these texts. So my guess is there's some of you here today are disagreeing with even how I'm trying to teach through this. There's not unanimous agreement, so I'm trying to handle this with integrity and honesty. And there's still another thing I think we need to talk about. As I was preaching this to the staff on Thursday, Teresa Jordan, she, she, she mentioned that this is a reality for many, and I hate that we even have to talk about this. 
But I'm mindful today of the issue of abuse in marriage. What an awful thing to have to even consider. What a horrible word. Abuse is the opposite of everything godly. Marriage is to be this beautifully intimate one flesh union that reflects the gospel. And abuse is such a gross violation of what marriage is intended to be. And I hate that we have to talk about it, but I think we do. See, the Bible doesn't offer instructions to married couples where abuse is occurring in the marriage. And I can't exhaust all of the things the Bible says about all of this, but it's an extremely complicated issue. But I think it's important for me today to acknowledge that that's a reality, that there are marriages where abuse is is present. So what do we do with that? There's two, I think there's two great failures that can take place. The first failure is this. The first great failure is when the abused are counseled to remain in danger's way in some misguided application of biblical marriage. We say, for better or worse, and church leadership has failed so often in the past of forcing someone to stay in a situation where they're being victimized and wounded. Physical violence against a spouse is appalling. It's immoral. It should never be tolerated ever by anyone. No one should remain in an unsafe environment. Physical abuse is against the law. And it's appropriate to involve legal authorities if that's the case. Physical abuse, whether it's a husband or a wife, should, the one who is being abused should immediately seek safety. And if there are children involved, the safety and protection of children should be of utmost importance and they should be removed from the situation. Listen, there is, there is nothing unbiblical about separating from an abuser. In fact, it's morally right to protect yourself and to protect your children. Hear me. The second way I think we fall off the rails or we make mistakes here is on the other end of the spectrum. When abuse is alleged of any behavior we disagree with. Allegations of abuse need to be taken seriously, and they should be taken seriously. And I recognize that these, these situations are complex, so I'm nervous about even saying this because I recognize how abusers are great manipulators and abusers are great at gaslighting, and they can convince the abuse that what they're experiencing isn't abuse. So with trepidation, I even address this issue. But allegations of abuse can be a trump card, and I've seen it used as a cudgel and a tool of manipulation in marriage. So we have to be very careful if an allegation of abuse is being leveled that it is in fact abuse. And there's a scale and there's a spectrum when it comes to abuse as well of just vile, evil, abhorrent human beings who are willfully inflicting pain and torment on people. And there's just ignorant idiots who are just dumb. And in their ignorance, they inflict pain. But to make allegations of abuse when there is no abuse is very, very damaging and very, very dangerous. With fear, I share that. I share that because I know how manipulative abusers can be. So just let me say clearly before I finish. If you are in an abusive situation right now, whether you're a spouse or a child or a parent or you're being abused by a caretaker, listen to me. Know that God does not want you to remain in that situation. It's not right. It's not appropriate. It's not godly to accept physical, sexual, or psychological abuse. Leave the situation. Find someone to help you. If you don't have anyone to help you, you're looking at someone who can help you. Pastor Jeremy can help you. Kathy Johnson can help you. Aaron Beamish can help you. Mike Robinson can help you. Pat Schaff can help you. Our church can help you. Speak up. We don't want you to be alone. We don't want you to face abuse alone. We're here to help. Find us after service. If that's too scary, call the office. If that's too scary, email paul at heritagefellowship.net. It is not God's will for you to be victimized. Okay. Three points of application for our sermon today. Three points of application. Here's the first application, and Jesus models it for us perfectly. Hold a high view of marriage. Jesus does not quibble about the particularities of divorce. He just upholds the biblical picture of marriage. We are to hold a high view of marriage. We live in a culture that endlessly attacks the meaning of marriage. Let's focus on the ideal. Let's not get in the weeds of the moral arguments. When corrupt men were trying to justify divorce in the presence of Jesus, he upheld the ideal. 
in a world where marriage has been undermined, the meaning of marriage has been undermined, masculinity, femininity, manhood, womanhood, all that is so confusing and so up, in such upheaval, uphold the ideal for marriage. Now, you might be single here today, and you might be happily single with no desire. You may, you may, have, you may be embracing the gift of singleness. It's important for you, too, to uphold a high view of marriage because you're, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who need that encouragement, who need that reminder. The gospel is, is, the marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. This is the picture of God's love for his church. We are to have a high view of marriage. Second thing, second point of application, fight for your marriage. Don't give up. Healing is possible. And there's a thousand things that seek to break your marriage apart. A thousand things. More than a million things that seek to break your, your marriage apart. Fight for your marriage. Get help. Cry out. Reach out to the pastors. Reach out to a Christian counselor. Reach out to friends. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Fight for your marriage. I, my brother went through a painful divorce many years ago, and his, his divorce was biblically justified. He was the victim of, he was the, the offended against when it came to multiple, um, multiple um, offenses of, of infidelity. And I texted my brother this week. It's like, Todd, I'm teaching on marriage this week and on divorce. Like, what would you say? And he just said, if you can save your marriage, save it. He's like, the, the, what he said was, he says, the effects of divorce create a generational catastrophe that you do not understand. And there's lots that wants to fight against our marriage in a world filled with pornea. Men and women, can I encourage you to fight for purity? To fight for purity? Last week, Jeremy taught on the text where Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole. Jesus isn't calling us to, to mutilate our bodies. What he's saying is take sin so seriously that you're willing to do radical amputation if it's causing you to stumble. So when it comes to sins that are causing our marriage to be undermined, especially sexual sins, radical amputation is the answer. I spoke about this with the high school students last week. We have a ministry here for the men of our church called the Conquer Series. The Conquer Series, it's not a Bible study in the traditional sense, but it's a, it's a war council, as, as, as it's described. It's a war council for any man who's ever struggled sexually with sexual sin. I was talking to Mike Enright, the guy who leads the ministry, and I'm going to put his, 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 his email up on the, on the screen. Because if you're desirous of getting some help, man, if you're in this room and, and you're struggling with lust or, or, or infidelity or pornography or sexual sin on any level, we, we want to help. Mike wants to help. The Conquer series is for you. It's a Jesus-centered series. It's based on the Bible. And we just want to come alongside you to help you fight for purity in your marriage. And if you don't have a chance to write that down or it's uncomfortable to write that down right now, you can reach out privately to me to Mike, to any one of the pastors, and we'll point you in the right direction. We want to walk with you as you fight for purity. Don't settle. Don't settle for a half-dead marriage. Fight for marriage. Don't settle with a divorce. Fight for marriage. I love what Kent Hughes says in his commentary on Mark. Listen to what Kent Hughes says. This really, this struck me this week. He said, we have become so conditioned to measuring the rightness of what we do by the quality of emotion it generates that a new version of relativistic ethics has developed that we might call the morality of fulfillment. Fulfillment has taken on greater urgency and value than obedience. He says the elevation of one's own self-fulfillment is the ultimate good, and it functionally reduces God's word to an optional guidebook to meet one's emotional needs. The inerrant Bible is replaced with the humanistic value system in Christians' lives, and the error is deadly. He goes on to say, more important than self-fulfillment or even one's own happiness is obedience to God's word. God is not sitting in heaven biting his celestial fingernails over our happiness, but he's looking for obedience among his people. So, hold a high view of marriage, fight for your marriage, and the last point of application is we need to care for those afflicted by divorce. We need to be a church and a community that cares for those afflicted by divorce. In Christian circles, being divorced can feel like a scarlet letter. We have to resist such self-righteous judgment. According to Jesus, we're all adulterers at heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So if that's the standard of adultery, we're a room full of adulterers. adulterers. So when our brothers and sisters are going through divorce, whether they're the offender or the offended, let's endeavor to share in the suffering of our friends. Let's not call unclean that which God has called clean. At the end of the day, let's be a friend who's willing to sit in the ashes with those enduring divorce. 
And as a church, we want to be a resource to you. We want to help you. Our pastoral staff is always available. We're not counselors, but we have Christian counselors we can call upon. We can refer you to. We want to help you apply the gospel to your marriage. We'll sit with you in the ashes as you try to figure out what it means to honor God with your marriage. We'll sit in the complexity and the messiness and the ugliness of it. We're honored to do that. That's why we're on staff. That's why we do what we do. We also have other resources. We have Right Now Media, which if those of you who don't have it, all you have to do is just, if you, if you, if you send us a message through our app, you can, you can scan the little QR code on our, on our bulletin. You can send us a message saying, I want to know how to download Right Now Media. It's a free resource to everybody in our church. It's a Netflix-style library filled with great resources. There's so many resources to help you. If you're struggling in marriage, you're struggling to live with divorce, we want you to utilize that resource. And we have a Heritage at Home in the hallway. In addition to pastoral counseling and right now, we have Heritage at Home. We've got resources in there this week, particularly designed to help you deal with the reality or the struggle of divorce. Please stop by. Church, let's hold a high view of marriage. Let's fight for our marriage and let's care for those afflicted by divorce. Pray with me. Father, I'm thankful for today. I'm thankful that we get to gather here and we get to open up this 2,000-year-old text And God, we believe that this is a text that you inspired and you've given to us that we can hear your very words. And God, today is hard. Lord knows that as as an expositor or as a teacher, I'm a flawed man. So God, with humility, I offer this up to our congregation. God, asking that by your spirit, you would bring appropriate conviction. And that God, you would bring confession to our lips, contrition to our heart, and repentance to our feet. God, may we be a body of believers that desires more than anything to honor you and walk in obedience with your word and with your desire for our lives. So God, uh, I just pray that I know there's men and women here today that, are, that have deep, deep, deep wounds surrounding this topic. God, help them know they're not alone. God, just surround them with brothers and sisters in Christ who want to love them and sit with them in the ashes. Draw near to them, Jesus, and offer your comfort. God, I know there are marriages in this room that are on the brink. And there's, there's spouses in here who are ready to walk. God, would you do the miraculous? God, would you bring softened hearts on both sides? Would you bring conviction of sin? God, would you bring confession and repentance and a desire to fight for marriage that would honor you? God, would you bring healing to marriages? There are marriages in this room that have grown dead and they've been dead for years. God, would you bring intimacy back into the marriages of our church? God, would you bring confession and repentance where there hasn't been confession for decades? Would you bring it and bring healing and bring new seasons? God, you hate divorce. And God, I pray that even as we wrestle with the reality of living in a fallen world and hard hearts, that God, you would do a mighty work. You would draw near. God, you would soften hearts. You would open eyes and you would bring healing. God, we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.